Welcome to the Don't Knock It podcast, where we address misconceptions about Jesus' character, his church, and his word. By doing this, we hope to encourage you to delight in Christ before dismissing him, to know him before knocking him. I'm your host, Chris Ramirez, and today's misconception is, only God can judge me. So let's jump right into it. I think it's safe to say that many people tend to avoid confrontation. I have rarely, with the exception of a few family members, heard of anyone who welcomes the opportunity to confront someone in person. People obviously don't seem to pull any punches nowadays on social media, or if you're the teenager taking your order at Chick-fil-A or Starbucks gets your order wrong. But to approach someone and have a conversation, a back and forth dialogue, with the goal to correct them rather than just to vent frustration as you would a fast food employee, is often very uncomfortable, nerve-wracking, and if we're honest, oftentimes we brush off a much-needed conversation because we're afraid of losing a friend. But in my opinion, I think what people dislike even more than confronting somebody is being confronted, being on the receiving end of criticism, being judged. I think it's because we know what it feels like and you don't want to feel like a burden or like you're stepping on somebody's toes. But to go even deeper, I think we've been so influenced by our postmodern society that we get to the point where we just try to avoid getting in the way of someone else's truth. We begin to think things like, well, hey, if it works for them, who am I to judge? They seem to be in a happy, loving, loving relationship. Who am I, an outsider? Who am I to judge them? Who am I to impose my thoughts and beliefs on their thoughts and beliefs? Well, those questions seem to imply that there are no absolute truths, only relative ones. What I mean by that is some people believe that nothing can be absolutely true, meaning that something can and is true 100% of the time across every culture and and throughout all of time. Is it wrong to abuse a child? Yes, that is an absolute truth. Because it's true 100% of the time across every culture throughout all of time. Is it wrong to violate a woman? Yes, same thing, same thing applies. Is it wrong to hate someone for the color of their skin? Yep, that's absolutely true. True across every culture throughout all of time, 100% of the time. Obviously, some individuals and people groups do not submit to those truths because they're holding their relative truth, meaning their own individually prescribed beliefs, above the absolute truth that those things are wrong 100% of the time. Simply put, the majority of evil done between one human to another is due to this choice between holding up their relative truth above an absolute one. Now, how in the world does this relate to the topic of judging or confronting others? Well, because when we're confronted about a particular behavior that is indeed sinful, according to God's word, which for believers, for Bible believing or Bible reading believers, that serves as our absolute truth standard. We have to compare that standard to what someone is seeing in us and calling out in us. For example, If someone sees me mouthing off to my wife in public and seeks to correct me on my language by saying, hey, dude, I think I think you need to chill. The Bible says that husbands should love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her in Ephesians 525. So watch yourself. 
take it easy. I, as the one being corrected and essentially judged and criticized, have a choice to do one of two things. One, I could mouth off to him and say, shut up, don't judge me. I can speak to my wife any way I want. I'm completely justified in how I'm speaking to her right now. Or I could do two. I could submit to the absolute truth of Ephesians 5.25, take my friend's judgment as an absolute truth above my relative truth of feeling justified in my speech and stand judged and corrected by a dear friend. This is biblical judgment, declaring guilty or innocent based on a comparison between actions and the law given. This is how our court system works today, or the way it should, anyway. The judge has the ability to say, this is wrong, based on this particular law, therefore you will serve this particular sentence. God's law is no different. In fact, it holds more weight because God's law is perfect because it comes from Him, not some possible misinterpretation by a flawed human judge. This is why feeling guilty about something you did is not necessarily a bad thing if it stems from actually being guilty from some, for something you did. But someone may say, hold on, Chris, doesn't the Bible say that we shouldn't judge others? In a way, yes. But let's take some time to discover where that comes from and what Jesus is actually commanding when he says, do not judge so that you will not be judged in his Sermon on the Mount. Starting at verse 1, Jesus says, Do not judge so that you will not be judged. For in the way you judge, you will be judged. And by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. And then verses 3 through 5, we read the commonly known illustration about pointing out the speck in someone's eye while you have a log in yours. Verse 5 gives the entire context of Jesus condemning this type of judgment by pointing out the hypocrisy of it by saying, You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So is Jesus restricting judgment completely? I don't think so. I think it would be a stretch to conclude that from this passage. By reading the whole passage, I think it's safe to say that he's restricting hypocritical judgment. So going back to the example of my friend correcting me on how I'm mouthing off to my wife, Considering what Jesus is saying here in Matthew 7, it would be hypocritical for him to be correcting me when he mouths off to his wife more frequently than I do. According to Jesus, this friend of mine would receive the same judgment he's placing on me because he's sinning in a, sim in a similar manner. When we point out the sin of others while we ourselves commit the same sin, we condemn ourselves, as Romans 2.1 tells us. This is what Jesus is talking about here. Many people use this verse in Matthew 7 to silence people who are criticizing them, assuming Jesus is saying, you don't have the right to tell me I'm wrong. But when Jesus said not to judge others, he did not mean that no one can identify a sin for what it is based on God's definition of sin. Essentially, 
He's not saying you can dismiss God's absolute truth in order to hold fast to your relative truth, as we discussed earlier. You can't just say, you don't have the right to tell me I'm wrong when God clearly says something is wrong. So does the Bible address how to judge correctly? Yeah, we see that in various places throughout the New Testament. Beginning with John uh, 7.24, here Jesus gives a direct command to judge when he says, Stop judging by mere appearances, but instead judge correctly. Another example is in Luke 7, verses 36 through 50, when Simon the Pharisee judges a woman based on her appearance and reputation, overlooking that she had already been forgiven by Jesus. So because of this judgment done solely on her appearances, Simon receives a rebuke from Jesus for his unrighteous judgment when Jesus points out how he, meaning Simon, had not shown good hospitality to Jesus. So you may say, well, see, Chris, that's what that's what we mean. When we say don't judge, we're saying don't judge simply on our outward appearances or our our actions or our reputations, because deep down, we're actually good people. I'm actually a good person. This is a good point, but don't miss what people are assuming if they say this. They're assuming I'm targeting or any other believer is targeting them as a person destroying their human dignity by judging their actions. A person's value is not determined by their actions or appearances. This isn't what's happening. Yet, there's something that arises in a person's heart when they feel a bit of shame for something they're doing and seek to justify their actions in light of an an already established truth. So, let me give another example. I've been to family parties where people know that I'm a Christian and love Jesus. I don't flaunt it, of course, by walking in and saying, y'all need to put down the booze and pick up your cross. They either know already or at some point during the night we have a conversation about God. But there's been times when a couple family members who believe in God have come up to me, slightly drunk, put their arm around me and say, oh, Chris, I'm sorry. Don't be ashamed of me. Don't think I'm a bad person. I'm just trying to have a good time with the family. And I stand there a little awkwardly, not knowing exactly what to say. So I've just said something along the lines of, well, don't apologize to me. I love you guys. You got to take that up with God. But with both Christians and non-Christians, there's something that stirs up in your heart when you feel confronted or judged. This stirring up of the heart should not be alarming or surprising, though, because we read in Romans chapter 2 that the law of God is written on every heart and that their conscience bears witness to their thoughts, meaning that every person bears a God-given conscience, sometimes referred to as a moral compass, that has been placed in every person's heart and we have the ability to suppress it, to replace it with what we think is supreme, or embrace it and place God as our supreme authority. And as we see in society, people obey their inner voice, so to speak, to various degrees. But Simply spending your life obeying this internal moral compass and trying to do your best to follow it will not save you and make you right with God. As we, as we read through Paul's letter to the Romans, we'll see that we see that simply obeying your moral compass is not enough to make you right with God. Only faith in Jesus could make you right with God. So in closing, can and should someone other than God judge you? Absolutely. 
in a sense, God is using other Christians around you as a grace from him to shape you and correct you to live a more godly life tailored for his glory. In fact, Jesus in Matthew 18 verse 20, he says, For where two or three have gathered together in my name, I am there in their midst. Oftentimes this verse is used to describe the church, which isn't completely off, but it's more accurately speaking of his authority and discipline being shown on earth among believers. Is God the only one who can judge you? No. If you have broken one of his laws, which the Bible tells us in James 2.10, that if you break one, you're guilty of breaking all. So if and when this occurs, you stand guilty and are able to and should be corrected by your family in Christ. Do you want God and God alone to judge you? Mm, I don't think so. Because apart from Christ acting as your mediator, your Lord, your Savior, you stand guilty where you're at right now and will stand guilty on your day of judgment before him. But yeah, Chris, no one, no one wants to be that type of Christian. I would encourage you, brothers and sisters in Christ, be that type of Christian. Because God is that type of God, a corrective one, yet a compassionate one. Christians are warned against judging others unfairly and unrighteously, yet we are to be wise in our discernment, able to distinguish not only right from wrong, but also right from almost right. We are to preach the delightful passages and the difficult ones, both God's mercy on sinners and the Bible's teaching on sin. We are to gently confront brothers and sisters in Christ for the sake of seeking their restoration if they are in sin. That's Galatians 6. And when they refuse to turn from their sin and decide to continue in it, we are to practice church discipline, which is described in Matthew 18 verses 15 through 17, and exclude them from the fellowship. So if you've ever had a friend correct you or distance themselves from you because of your behavior or your lack of repentance, just know that they're obeying God with those actions and are holding true to their convictions. This is difficult to accept and even more difficult to practice. But our attempts to restore a friend who is sinning with righteous judgment is an extension of God's hand, a grace from heaven a warning against the slippery slope of trying to justify your sin, our sin. John 3.16, arguably the most widely known Bible, Bible verse in the world, reads, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Continuing to verse 17, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. So according to these verses, Jesus did not come down to earth to judge or condemn people, but to save. Why? Because we stand judged and condemned already. It makes no sense for him to come and do the same thing when we are already guilty. We stand condemned. We have loved darkness rather than light. We have all been declared guilty before God because of our sin. The gavel has come down and we have heard the verdict. Boom. Guilty on all counts. 
But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace we have been saved. Faith in Jesus allows the gavel to come down on him rather than on us. He took the penalty of our sin on himself, and we are declared righteous, meaning in right standing with God, because of his finished work. Not what we try to muster up ourselves in trying to follow our own moral compass. I encourage you to seek him out, my friends, to delight in him before dismissing him, to know him before knocking him. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of the Don't Knock It podcast. I'm your host, Chris Ramirez. Grace and peace, family.